This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in town to talk business uh, and steel today, tariffs, trade, all that sort of thing. Uh, He, of course, was on uh, the Bill Kelly show earlier on today, 9 o'clock this morning, uh, talking with Bill. We're going to play you some clips of what he had to say. Uh, This is Justin Trudeau talking about Trump's strategy and Canada's plan. There have always been sort of threats uh, or, or at least strong language associated with NAFTA, whether it was, oh, no, negotiate a good deal or we'll tear it up. Now it's a negotiate a good deal or there might be tariffs. Uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of, of uh, positioning that the president uh, has been doing consistently. And our response has simply been to, uh, to continue to stay sort of open, constructive, but very firm on defending Canadian interests uh, at the table and, and keeping doing the work. Uh, Justin Trudeau talking about his phone conversations with Trump. That there were tens of thousands of workers and their families uh, and communities uh, in Canada that were going to be uh, affected by these tariffs. Uh, but there were also uh, lots of communities and workers and families in the United States that would be negatively impacted by these tariffs, that our, our economies are so uh, intertwined uh, that they cannot uh, imagine that putting these tariffs in would be uh, beneficial for, uh, for, for the United States either. And the Prime Minister on Chinese steel uh, being dumped in Canada and then sent to the United States through Canada. There is no transshipment of, uh, of uh, Chinese steel through Canada. We're uh, working together on preventing things like diversion. We're uh, working together to ensure that uh, we're protecting North Americans' uh, very integrated steel and aluminum sectors. All right, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So purpose of the PM's visit to Hamilton today and, of course, the timing, does this ease concerns over what is happening with tariffs and all the talk in the United States? Uh, Well, I'm not sure what talking to the local steel industry does in terms of the negotiating dynamic, but I guess it certainly signals that uh, he's taking the uh, threat that these uh, tariffs would have on local employment levels in places like Hamilton and the Saguenay uh, seriously. And, I mean, presumably there's nothing like a bit of uh, saber-rattling trade war to uh, uh, try and get Canadians to, to rally around you, because who would want their government not to do well in these negotiations? A different discussion, or let me phrase it this way, how much would the discussion be different compared to what we hear and and, and see in the media to uh, compared to what the conversation these two would have on the phone? What, what would it be like to be a fly on the wall? What do you think these phone conversations are like? Well, that's a good question. I mean, particularly since Donald Trump is, uh, you know, a bit particular as a president, but uh, I suspect in most cases they're pretty frank. Uh, I mean, in most cases, uh, leaders of countries don't really speak to each other except when there's some issue in the negotiations, right? They have people doing the negotiations, and when they hit a snag, sometimes it has to be put up to the political level, uh, and that's where you have the capacity to go beyond the really well-entrenched positions of your country to maybe say, okay, well, we'll we'll be willing to cut this kind of deal. I mean, that's how it's typically done, but again, with Trump, I mean, there's an unpredictability uh, it's not really clear. I mean, clearly, uh, just like Trudeau does well with the trade war, I think Trump realizes that uh, he's able to mobilize a certain base of support in the United States when he uh, brings forth an economic nationalism, uh, you know, to, to uh, distract. And so I think his position is probably based less on a real thinking through about what to do in terms of NAFTA or specific industries like the steel industry or the auto industry and much more around 
responding to you know a particular situation. Uh, I'm not sure he really has a sense of what a good policy would be. Uh, should steelmakers feel more comfortable after the prime minister's visit? Uh, well, I guess it depends whether the prime minister has information for them that's other than what he shared on Bill Kelly. <laughs> All said and done, I mean, does is there something he knows that they don't know? Uh, I mean, certainly he can reassure them about what he's pushing for in his steel negotiations. Uh, we saw that the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce put forward a, their four-point plan of what they hoped the Canadian government would do. Perhaps he can provide some reassurance that he's doing that already. Uh, but all told, uh, you know, there's not a lot uh, that can be done. It's, it's mostly a negotiation, and a negotiation where we need the American market much more than they need the Canadian market. And so that produces... Uh, you know, an inequality. Trudeau can say, yes, there's thousands of, uh, you know, families in the States, just like there's thousands of families in Canada who would be affected by that. Uh, but, uh, you know, the United States is 10 times the size of Canada. So as a percentage, that's a, a much less significant, uh, if you like, uh, uh, cost to pay or price to pay for Trump. And, you know, that has an impact in these negotiations. Uh, you know, three quarters of our exports go to the United States. It's an important part of our economy as an export-oriented economy. So, you know, whether it's steel or whether it's NAFTA, more generally, uh, we're much more dependent on uh, having the uh, the result we need than the United States, who, who aren't trading at anywhere near like the same rate with Canada. Is there less tension in these negotiations, considering Trump's um, uh, desire to flip-flop on these issues? I mean, at one point, I think all in the span of, of a few days, less than a week, we went from uh, 25% uh, on steel and 10% on aluminum, and then a couple of days later, no exemptions, and then a couple of days later, okay, there will be exemptions. If you're a world leader, at what point do you, all right, let's just sit and wait till the dust settles and there's no sense getting all in a tizzy over this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, the Canadian view that maybe we should try and draw this out is, is important. <laughs> I mean, in the long run, uh, as long as there's uncertainty, it does hurt investment in Canada. And, I mean, rates of business investment uh, compared to the states uh, or other countries in the OECD were going down even before uh, Trump was elected president, I mean, since about 2014. But... Certainly, there's no additional incentive to be investing in a big plant in Canada when you're not sure, at least if your your point is to be exporting to the United States, when you're not sure under what conditions you'll be able to export or not, what sort of tariffs. And so, you know, stringing it out longer does have that cost for Canada. But on the other hand, the Canadians must be looking at uh, the Republican Party, but even significant aspects of the Democratic Party who have been free traders uh, for 50 years. <laughs> and so uh, they're I think trying to get a sense, does Trump really change the position of uh, the American political elite on trade, or is it a matter of waiting him out and then it will return to a previous status quo? And in that kind of context, you don't want to give up too much in the NAFTA negotiations because uh, it's not clear that the United States would necessarily give those up even if they return to that previous status quo. How va- Trump's constantly paying a picture that, that Merrick is getting a raw deal, whether it's NAFTA, whether it's steel, what have you. How valid are his claims? Is Canada being treated and the U.S. being treated fairly here with these? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you see trade working. I mean, if you see free trade as an unmitigated good for all partners to the agreement, uh, he's clearly in the wrong. Uh, you know, he, yes, you know, the protectionist argument is always attractive, but in the long run, what it leads you to have is a set of inefficient industries. I mean, I think that's like an overly simplistic view about how these things work. 
Um, but certainly, you know, the United States has done uh, well historically uh, as being a free trading nation. But it's a it's a country that actually trades a lot less than others because it's a continental economy of about 300 million people. Uh, it actually trades relatively little compared to a country like Canada. And so in that context, uh, to put so much emphasis on how trade is having an impact on employment levels or the health of the manufacturing economy is, is to, to, to exaggerate. Although certainly uh, the growth of imports from China has had an important impact on the American manufacturing industry, although you know there's a bit of a bounce back as wage levels uh, in China and in Asia rise and it becomes profitable again to do some manufacturing in the States. Uh, lots of chatter in regard to Chinese dumping of steel, yet we see with America it, it, it makes for about 3% of, uh, of their imports. Uh, Trudeau commenting about how, of course, they're trying to stop diversion through Canada and going into the United States. How big an issue is this? How much is Canada facilitating this Chinese dumping? I'm not an expert on the steel sector. I wouldn't expect that much. I mean, the the problem is, uh, ultimately, that we have massive overcapacity in the global steel industry. Uh, And you have, in the North American context, an industry whose most recent, you know, major plant is sitting on the shores of Lake Ontario, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Lake, uh, you know, the Nanticoke plant, which is, you know, from the early 80s. So we have these, you know, old uh, plants in North America, uh, which have been completely surpassed by new steelmaking capacity in China and India with you know much more modern technology. Uh, and you know in this context, then it's a fight about uh, what sort of tariffs or protections will you know in, ensure uh, the continuity of a North American steel industry. And so you know there's a lot of bashing back and forth around this, but uh, you know a lot of it is to say, well, given this overcapacity, on what basis are we going to uh, reallocate that? At the moment, we're we're reallocating to North America by using these kinds of subsidies. In the longer term, there has to be a question about how much steel capacity do we need in the global economy. I can't let you go, Peter, without asking you your thoughts on uh, how we are setting up for the Ontario election. Obviously, all of the uh, leaders have now been chosen. What are your thoughts as uh, this appears to be the first week of campaigning? Yeah, well, it's a completely different election than if uh, Patrick Brown had been there, right, which was really going to be a race to the center mm. uh, about whether, you know, he could present a, an image of the Conservative Party, which would, you know, be about changes, about doing things differently. We'd have a carbon tax rather than cap and trade. Uh, you know, we would address a number of issues differently, but it wouldn't be four years of fights in Ontario. I mean, with Doug Ford, I think we're really having a populist poll put up, and the question is, well, where does that leave Kathleen Wynne to respond to that? Is she going to try and become more populist herself? Is she going to be the voice of reason against the voice of emotion? And, you know, what does that do for uh, someone like Andrea Horvath? Does she risk losing part of the NDP base to the populist appeals of Doug Ford, or does it actually polarize our debate and she becomes a sort of credible anti-Ford in terms of promising you know, changes, uh, but perhaps of a, of a less severe variety that uh, Doug Ford puts forward. Uh, with Doug Ford now the leader of the PC party, is that good? Is this the best case scenario for Kathleen Wynne or worse? Well, I think in uh, one way of thinking about running this election, it's, uh, I mean, I think she probably would have liked to run against Patrick Brown, but for her, she was planning, I think, regardless, to start the campaign running to the left and saying, we have to beat the big bad conservatives. Everyone has to rally around me. You can't afford to vote for Andrea Horvath. Certainly that campaign script is going to be uh, pretty useful for her with Doug Ford, who's probably a much bigger monster, if you like, if you're trying to uh, 
uh, you know, run everyone against, uh, you know, the, the awful conservatives, if that's the sort of line. Uh, the danger is that she's weakened uh, for her, right? And so she may try to run that way, and people will say, yeah, we don't want Doug Ford, but we don't want you either. Uh, maybe we'll look at the, the NDP. So on the one hand, it sets her up well for the kind of campaign she wants to run, but the question is, does she have the strength to be able to pull that off, or will she ultimately just be blowing votes into Andrea Horvath's sale? Can Ford win in Ontario, or could this blow up and, and have another defeat for the PCs like we've seen in the last uh, couple of elections? Well, I mean, uh, I think he can win. It can also blow up. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very unpredictable uh, figure. He's certainly someone uh, who doesn't seem to have a lot of growth potential. Uh, there's not a lot of people who aren't voting for the Conservatives now who will vote because it's uh, Doug Ford. Uh, on the other hand, he's going to mobilize and motivate those voters to come out. And so I think a big question will be who will come and vote. Uh, I mean, I think we saw in the last uh, Toronto mayoral race, Doug Ford got almost as many votes as his brother had got the time before. The difference was uh, a lot of other people who said, we don't want this person to be mayor, came out and voted against him. And so that will be the other dynamic. Do we have a turnout at 50% or do we have a turnout at 75%? That could be a pretty significant difference about where the parties show up in, in June. Do you think Ontarians are more interested in this election than they have been in the past? No. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Peter. Uh, not, they, not even with all this uh, fun and frivolity going on? Come on. Uh, no? I think there's some people who are a lot more wound up because they hate Kathleen Wynne or they love Doug Ford or they hate Doug Ford. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that passion is necessarily driving much more interest. And I think a lot of people, when they see the other people's passions get turned off and say, well, that, that's a bit too much to be building on any of these people. Are you surprised where we are where we are now? I am a bit. I mean, I think the Conservative Party had changed over the past four or five years in terms of what they thought they were about. Uh, and in the space of about four weeks, they went back 40 years. So we have Doug Ford saying he wants to put a neon sign. I mean, there's a modern technology on the border saying Ontario open for business. And to me, that sounds like Brian Mulroney in 1984. Uh, I, I'm not seeing, you know, a lot of engagement uh, with the sort of modern issues of Ontario. Uh, you know, really uh, an emphasis on the sex ed curriculum, which seems to have been working fine for the three years it's been in place. Uh, uh, I don't know. It, it seems to me a bit uh, a bit of a different race because the Conservatives said they changed, stood for one thing, and now they're standing for a bunch of very different things. And so, are you surprised they haven't buried the sex ed thing? I mean, why even go there? Uh, well, I mean, it's obviously important uh, for certain yeah. members of that party. I mean, and if, if Doug Ford is the leader, it's because Tanya Granick Allen, you know, ran what she knew was going to be a losing campaign, but brought people in, and uh, they were able to feed into the victory of uh, Doug Ford, much like uh, Lemieux and uh, Trost did in the federal conservative race. Right, the, the social conservatives have really invested in that party and been successful in getting leaders who are open to them. And I think that's why we have Doug Ford. He probably wants to bury it, but he has to at least give it a few days and make the promise that he's going to scrap the curriculum, uh, you know, so that they, they stay with him. Uh, at least through to June uh, this year. Is it wise to say scrap the the curriculum because that's the way it's being reported now? Before it was tweak. I mean, you know, again, this is is this opening a can of worms he needs to open? Well, I mean, for someone who says he wants to make the public sector much more efficient, going back and saying we have to consult more when there are plenty of consultations about a policy that seems to have worked fine. For I mean, maybe I'm not speaking to the right people, but I've heard no peep of protest about yeah. how it's actually been implemented. Uh, you know, why are we spending the time and money uh, revisiting something like that? And so, you know, whether it's a tweak or a revisit, it's going to be consultations. And 
I'm, I'm, I don't get the sense that Ontario is unhappy with the curriculum, which, quite frankly, doesn't look so different from the one I had in the 1980s. I would agree with that. Peter Grant, thanks for the time. Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Normally, at the end of the week, we kind of put all the Trump stuff together and, um, you know, like a shopping list, go through it all. But, gee, here we are uh, just at Tuesday, and we've already got the NRA, Stormy Daniels, Rex Tillerson, and, oh, yeah, no collusion. Uh, To talk about all of this, Michael Diamond is with us, conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me on. All right, Michael, let's talk about collusion first. What have we found out? Do we know there's no collusion, that this is, was all for nothing? Is that true? Well, we, we, you know, what we know is that uh, the, the president, what he says, and reality will often be a few degree, d- degrees removed. So his story has been uh, fair, fairly consistent. But we know, we, we do know that uh, there was talk of this uh, back, you know, well over a year and a half ago now, uh, almost two years ago, uh, that was that there was a, a benefactor of that, uh, that there were senior uh, either figures in his campaign or friends and those on the periphery of the campaign uh, who, who had access uh, to benefit from uh, from these actions so, uh, or, or the ability to motivate these actions for the campaign to benefit from. So uh, is there collusion that the president was involved in? Probably not. Is uh, The more we learn, uh, d- does this become more interesting? Absolutely. So why does he keep drawing attention to himself? I mean, you know, I think a lot of this started because of his apparent or uh, appearing to have a bromance with, with Putin prior to the campaign. Uh, if, if there's no collusion, why doesn't he just move on and stop talking about it and stop drawing attention to himself in the topic? Well, that, that's a, an excellent point. Like when, when the president of the United States uh, in a debate for his party's nomination said, you know, flattering things about Vladimir Putin, who is a tyrant, dictator, and murderer, uh, you know, that should have set off a lot of alarm bells for uh, Republicans, especially uh, neocons like uh, the John McCain's and Lindsey Graham's of the party. Uh, Vladimir Putin is the enemy of everything that, that good Republicans stand for. Uh, folks like Ronald Reagan would be rolling over in their graves over admiration of a former K- KGB agent. Uh, so, yeah, the president, uh, this is something that should be very, very easy for him to move on from. He owes, uh, he might owe Putin a great deal, but he's now president and uh, uh, there, there's no reason to not uh, put uh, a lot of uh, daylight between us. So uh, so at wh- where is the Mueller investigation now? Where does that leave that considering there doesn't appear to be collusion? Yeah, look, I think what we'll, what we'll, we'll see is that uh, it, there will be no formal uh, formal actions uh, taken, uh, but it will, will be a cloud that hangs over this president and the Republicans, and it will be interesting to see how that impacts uh, later this year when uh, Republicans are up for re-election to the House and Senate and other uh, other uh, important offices, how the president's behavior impacts those, those office holders when he's not on the ballot for the party. Is Trump out of the woods on this whole Russian connection? Uh, will anything more come out of the Mueller investigation? Look, it was always going to be very hard to actually pinpoint something specific. So I think he is out of the woods procedurally and legally. Politically, that all depends on how he handles it. And he has a lot of latitude. He gets away with a lot that uh, other, other folks and uh, conventional politicians never could, uh, never could withstand. 
All right, uh, Rex Tillerson is out as a Secretary of State. I guess you can only call the boss a moron before sooner or later it catches up to you. Uh, what? Why now? Well, it wasn't just it wasn't just a moron that he called him. So, but we're not going to use that other word that wouldn't <laughs> be appropriate on this great uh, global uh, news radio uh, network. Uh, but, uh, but look, yeah, I mean, at that point, it was undoubtedly true that uh, Secretary Tillerson said that our resignation should have uh, should have been accompanying that uh, that statement uh so not a huge surprise they've been on rocky ground for a while uh kind of surprised that tillerson lasted longer than jeff sessions hmm. but uh, you know we've seen this uh, trolling of his own cabinet on twitter it's really quite preposterous and uh, uh just absurd so why fire tillerson now uh, because it's donald trump you know so one i mean He's just unpredictable. He bragged that he was going to be unpredictable. Uh, Tillerson, you know, maybe uh, maybe put too much milk in his coffee this morning. <laughs> so how does Tillerson or the rest of Washington view this? Oh, I think, uh, you know, if you, if you look, uh, Tillerson got the job because of... Uh, Trump, Trump went outside of what you usually look for. You know, uh, Barack Obama's two Secretary of State were both previous presidential candidates, uh, one of whom had uh, John Kerry, some good foreign policy experience from his time in the Senate. If you look at, you know, George W. Bush, he, he chose a general and a foreign policy expert slash academic with uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice and, and, and so on. And, and so Trump really went outside the mold, which was a, a big a big risk. It wasn't the safe choice. So I thought he would have been a bit more loyal to Tillerson because of that feeling that he owed um uh, owed him, but uh, or not owed him, but uh, that uh, they owed each other and that they had to uh, get through this together. But that obviously did not happen. Uh, one of the interesting things is Tillerson at the time of his appointment was really uh, re- criticized by a lot, including some Republicans like Marco Rubio, for his ties to Vladimir Putin in Russia through his uh, time as uh, CEO of ExxonMobil. So, you know, it was a strange place to start, just his background, really impressive, obviously. Uh, strange to put that person in as Secretary of State when you consider that role as really the chief diplomat and negotiator on foreign matters. Uh, but, uh, you know, not a conventional president, not conventional times. And uh, uh, the, really the major criticism was that personal friendship with Putin, which was also helpful in some ways. Although, obviously, no one's surprised here. How is Washington viewing this? And his announcement for a replacement, which is someone from the CIA, which seems odd considering he's so critical of the intelligence agencies. Well, well look, uh, uh, it, it gets back to what we've talked about before. Those who dislike Donald Trump are going to think that firing Rex Tillerson is a huge mistake. They probably never had anything nice to say about Mr. Tillerson until yeah. today, but they will now have plenty <laughs> of nice things to say about Rex Tillerson. So, so those who dislike Donald Trump, you know, just before getting on air, I noticed Bob Dole posted on Twitter uh, a photo of him and Mike Pompeo congratulating him on his uh, you know, promotion and elevation to the most senior cabinet position. Uh, so, you know, those who like and tolerate uh, Donald Trump are happy with it. And what about uh, Tillerson's replacement or his suggestion for replacement anyway? Oh, yeah, that, that's fair because yeah, uh, Mike Pompeo will have to be confirmed uh, by the Senate. And it still should be easy, large Republican uh, majority still. And uh, the Senate did uh, confirm him for his current job as CIA director. Um I guess more conventional in some ways than Tillerson as Secretary of State, just the background at, uh, you know, CIA director and, uh, uh his uh, previous uh, background in the House of Representatives make him a bit more conventional, but, uh, we'll have to see if he's willing to, uh, not call the president the, uh, more, uh, moron. 
Well, uh, it has what often happens in scenarios. Uh, your best friends with the president for a couple of weeks and then something happens. Uh, how long will uh, this next candidate be before he butts heads with the with the president? Well, at some point, they're going to either disagree or have some of it doesn't go well on his end. And at that point, I think you'll see uh, see some. Uh, what about Rex, Rex Tillerson moving on? And what grade do you give him uh, in his job? Look, Rex Tillerson will go will go down in history as a very inconsequential uh, Secretary of State. He'll be best remembered for his uh, his kind of strange name, and uh, you know that he was the first Secretary of State in history to be trolled publicly by his boss uh, on on Twitter. So I think you know those are what we're going to remember Rex Tillerson for, and that really dreadful Saturday Night Live uh, skit where he did a Bobby body bump with uh, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Um, will we hear more from Tillerson, or will he just go into private industry and fade into the woodwork? Look, he might just be ready to retire. This man's worth uh, yeah. a small fortune, uh, literally, and uh, uh, got uh, good tax savings because of his time as Secretary of State. So we're not going to see him being money-hungry like certain public office holders who leave and need to get that book out and need to make that book extra salacious. To uh, Will we see a book from him, do you think, or he'll just go away quietly? You know, we may very well, but it's not going to be done with the uh, with the uh, point of getting rich, or uh, and because of that it might not be as salacious, but we might see he'll want to protect his reputation. So I think a good place to start would be similar to what uh, Steve Bannon did with a sit down with 60 Minutes. Hmm. All right, let's move on to the NRA. Uh, After the shootings in Florida, uh, President Trump sat down with family members and uh, and even a a bipartisan meeting that we all remember was well televised. And I, I swear I can still see the Republicans sitting there with their mouths just hanging open saying, what is this man saying? When he all of a sudden said, hey, why are we scared of the NRA? Uh, Talked openly about raising the gun age or the age to buy an automatic weapon. Even used the term, who's afraid of the NRA? Does it turn out that it's Donald Trump that's afraid of the NRA? Well, you know, I don't think that Donald Trump's afraid of the NRA. I think that Donald Trump's just so ambiguous and a chameleon on so many issues that he can could twist and turn on these issues and, and hold uh, positions simultaneously and actually be effective because of that, because he's not married to a rigid ideology. So this is a guy who one day could support, you know, gun rights. And then the next day uh, be very, uh, very clear about, uh, uh, you know, wanting to do things that the NRA won't like. And a lot of his base won't mind. Uh, can bad choice of words, can, can Trump dodge this bullet? I mean, at the end of the day, are Americans going to let him away with this on such an, an emotionally charged issue where he said, you know, 21, you shouldn't have an auto, you can't buy a handgun under 21, yet you can buy an automatic weapon. I mean, he said it himself. Are Americans going to let him uh, flip flop on this one? Look, it will be tough. This is a very charged issue, very polarized. Politically, uh, it's uh, almost entirely divided by party, uh, with a few exceptions of some uh, uh, red state Democrats in the United States Senate who support gun rights. Now, what you you need to uh, keep in mind, though, is Anyone, any president who's going to have success, and I'm going to use air quotes there because that obviously success depends on your perspective on this issue, but any president who's going to bring in any sort of major reforms on firearms issues is going to have to be a Republican because the Democrats are already there on it. They don't need to compromise on it. It would require Republican compromise on it, and that's why Trump might be uniquely positioned to actually uh, 
change things. I'm not going to call it a leadership role because, again, that will depend on your perspective. Why would he push it to the back burner then? Because, again, this could have been something that gave him a tremendous amount of credibility. Uh, I think, you know, on on that one, his sons are very uh, engaged in the firearms community and uh, passionate about it. So it's an issue that he would want to avoid. But if he's, I think, very well positioned to deal with it in a way that, you know, his friends uh, and neighbors in New York City would like as a Republican president who's not ideologically rigid and married to a perspective on this issue. uh, uh, Unlike his sons, Trump would be able to uh, actually move, move an agenda. You know, I mean, if he if he stuck to the uh, over 21 doing the background checks and something as simple as bump stocks, this his name would go down in history as making significant change here. Significant change, absolutely, uh, and it would. Uh, I think you know again, the Republican Party uh, would have to be the one to move it, just like on some other issues. But why like, would they not take advantage of that? Simply because you know you've got a president that's sort of in by the skin of his teeth. Uh, nobody knows really for sure what party he's on. Uh, a lot of people are having a hard time taking him seriously. If he was to knock something like this out of the park, this would completely change the discussion on Donald Trump. Would it, it would, and it would also it would be tough a tough pill to swallow for some congressional Republicans, and maybe that's his fear on this. And again, we can't underestimate the importance of his son on this issue, who are strong advocates of firearm rights. And who cares what thing one and thing two says? Really, uh, they're they're father. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that was disrespectful, yeah. but I, but no, I, I just I you know I, I just for and it, but, you, but I'm a guy coming be, from Canada looking at this. I'm not a guy in the U.S. Look, I mean, you know what? I, uh, I'm a Canadian as well, obviously, as you announced, being uh, based in Toronto, and I find it very frustrating when Canadians uh, look at uh, firearms issues here, and because you think that can't the Canadian system, uh, you can't. Sorry, what, what I'm trying to say is that. Uh, Believing that we need some liberalization of laws on firearms in Canada, like we did uh, when Stephen Harper uh, did abolish the long gun registry, doesn't mean that you have to be a Second Amendment absolutist from a Canadian perspective. So there absolutely is room for reform and changes on firearm issues in the United States, and it would still not bring them into line with, uh, with Canada. And, you know, I mean, I just remember that one kid standing up during that protest and saying, we're not asking to take your guns. We're just asking for some rules. And I mean, it just and, and again, it seemed that the president every so often he gets a little bit of common sense there and, and he's but then he keeps it for a day or so and then he's gone. All right, let's move on from this uh, issue with the NRA. How do you think this is going to shake down? Do you think we will see change here or do you think this is just he's flip flopped? It's 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 a back burner. No one will, uh, this well, is going. It won't be before the midterm election. And I think uh, after that, it will depend, unfortunately, on what tragedies uh, strike yeah. uh, the nation. Uh, depressing to say that, but uh, I think that's a realistic and sad uh, reality. Uh, number two, what, what does the House and the Senate look like after? If there's fewer Republicans for him to worry about, and if he's going to have to start working with Democrats to move ahead his other other agenda items, this might be a very good olive branch. Plus, if he has to go and talk to parents and family members again and again and again and again, like Barack Obama did, his his opinion might change after he's done this uh, several times. Oh, sure. It uh, for sure gets depressing. Uh, All right, Stormy Daniels. Uh, Let's talk about this. She's going to court trying to get uh, whatever she signed overturned so she can talk about her experience with him, pictures or or texts or what have you. Is this going away? Does anybody care? 
Well, at this point, it's clearly not going away, and it's out, and uh, I don't know how much people will care because there's so many more greater scandals, both within uh, you know the realm of uh, sexual impropriety, uh, but also uh, this presidency. So I think, you know, non-issue, uh, hard to trust anyone who would violate a, uh, an agreement like that also. So uh, who knows? Uh, the, the moral of the story here is if you're going to get into public office, one, behave, two, don't uh, don't give away shakedown money. Uh, will we ever find out if Trump was related to the shakedown money, considering his lawyer signed the check? I mean, does that mean Donald knew about it or not? Uh, you know, what we may never have a definitive answer. Uh, lawyers don't give away that kind of money for free, but uh, maybe he was just not just a lawyer, but a really, really nice friend. <laughs> there you go. All right. I can't let you go, Michael, uh, without getting uh, a take on you as we head into the first week of, I guess, what is the uh, provincial election campaign. Now that I don't think anybody's officially pro- proclaimed the uh, campaign open, but now that everybody has a leader, they seem to gonna <laughs> that they're gonna stick with. It looks like that's the case. What are your thoughts? How does it change everything with the new leader into the race? Look, I think you know Doug Ford uh, had a, a really impressive win uh, on Saturday. I should, uh, for full disclosure, admit to uh, our listeners that I was his campaign manager for the uh, PC leadership election. So indeed, it was an incredibly impressive win. Uh, and if if you, I was just crunching through the numbers uh, earlier today. It was really the first time I've had a chance to sit down. And he won in regions throughout the province amongst the PC membership. And I think what you'll see in the election is that Doug Ford is going to be appealing in areas where the Progressive Conservative Party has never resonated before. So his leadership, his message, his vision for the province will absolutely change the map. Uh, one more question. Uh, how does he how does he prevent himself by being portrayed as another Donald Trump by the opposition that he's just a big bully that's going to you know do what we see south of the border? Oh, well, it's really easy. You just do that by not being like Donald Trump. And uh, Mr. Ford uh, has been, I think, really impressive uh, on the campaign trail throughout the leadership. Uh, he was uh, projected, I think, a very responsible but also compassionate vision for Ontario. He was reasonable. He was respectful of his opponents uh, during the campaign. And uh, I would say you, there should be no reason to expect uh, to see a different Doug Ford than the one that the province got to know and progressive conservative members decided to entrust with this massive responsibility. Michael Diamond has been with us, progressive, uh, sorry, Michael Diamond has been with us, conservative political pundit. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. An unidentified object captured uh, in footage by a U.S. Navy pilot has been declassified. Uh, what does this mean? And, you know, I almost feel embarrassing or embarrassed bringing in Paul Delaney because I'm not sure what he thinks about all of this stuff. Uh, but let's in, uh, bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for taking the call. We appreciate this. Uh, that's no problem at all, Scott. So when someone phones you up, Paul, and says we want to talk about UFOs, do you roll your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now you're yes. a you're a brilliant man. You know lots about the cosmos. What are you telling us? Are you saying you know more about this stuff than we do, the average guy with a video camera on the ground? Well, probably not. But let, let's remember that UFO stands for unidentified flying object, and there's no doubt in the world that this point of light is unidentified at this point. Uh, but you know that 
it's a big stretch to go from there to you know uh, invasions from Mars or any other form of extraterrestrial life. That's that's where I begin to you know be very very cautious about people's interpretations of lights in the sky. So what is it? What what was it that these pilots saw? Well, from the footage that I think a lot of people have seen, it's obviously a small bright point of light that appears to be moving at terrific speed. But, of course, we've got very little frame of reference. I mean, we have no idea how fast the pilots were moving, what sort of uh, range this object was away from them. Yeah, there, there's nothing to base scale on. And that's one of the biggest problems in turning a UFO into an IFO, an identified flying object. You've got to try and get some scale going. How far away was the object and how big was the object? And then you can begin to talk about speed. At the moment, all I'm seeing is a really bright point of light that is you know, moving with the pilots and is being uh, moved around, danced around by their uh, laser altimeter guidance system. I'm not quite sure what it was that was framing it, but it was obviously some sort of laser-guided camera system. So as pilots that, that, uh, that fly these sorts of things, wouldn't they be used to this kind of stuff? Wouldn't they have pretty much seen it all or not? Well, yeah, certainly that, that is your first expectation, that they log a lot of hours, they do a lot of it at night, and therefore you would think that they have seen everything. But when all is said and done, there's a phenomenal amount of stuff in the night sky uh, that, that we just don't identify. And one of the things that I sort of latch onto here is the U.S. has declassified this particular piece of footage. That says to me that they've figured out what it is, and they don't care that we <laughs> that they're releasing it. Uh, so, you know, was it something that they had launched? I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, but at this point in time, I've got no real good explanation as to what it is. And obviously the pilots weren't expecting it either. Why, if they've released this footage or declassified it, why would they just not put a footnote there and explain it? Oh, I think they're just as happy to leave that as a mystery. And maybe it's a mystery because they were testing something. Maybe it's a mystery because, in fact, they've lashed it on to, let me grab any country you like, China or Russia. Uh, You know, there's an awful lot of stuff that gets launched that we never get told about. Uh, And it wouldn't have surprised me in the slightest if what these pilots had actually seen was something that another branch of the military had actually launched. And then, of course, there is also the possibility that this is really just a glitch. That thing was moving along. Maybe it was introduced by the computer system. Not beyond the realm of possibility either. Are you surprised at the pilot's reaction to it? That just tells me that they weren't expecting it. Uh, so, you know, uh, in, in a way, no. Um, you know, if, if you're flying at whatever speed they were doing, I think they were flying a Hornet or some description. So, I mean, they're moving along. To see anything like that, yeah, that would surprise them. Whether or not they were debriefed and informed what it was, again, I wouldn't expect that. Uh, if this really was something to do with the uh, the military or a, a computer glitch, we're not even going to hear about it, nor will the pilots. Uh, you were referring to light. Is there a chance this could be a light as opposed to a solid object? I think that's a distinct possibility, some sort of reflection. Uh, again, I say, you know, I, I don't know what the, the circumstances were. Everybody has taken photographs of bright objects before, and when they examine the photograph, they see all sorts of extra light images that are floating around, internal reflections. Anybody who's done any measure of photography of, of brightish objects sees that all the time. Was what they were picking up some sort of bright object that was near to them? And again, I don't know what that bright object was, and this system was picking it up as an internal reflection. 
without the information about what it was they were flying, where they were flying, uh, and so on, you just don't know. We, we don't have enough information, and, and that's the bottom line to it. UFOs become IFOs when you have enough information. And 95 to 98% of all reported observations that are initially classified as UFOs, they become IFOs. You don't necessarily hear about it, but I do. Uh, it seems that uh, in the 1950s, this was big, the whole Roswell thing and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but over time, with technology and such, uh, these uh, sort of stories, uh, tales have, have fallen by the wayside. Why is this one getting the attention that it is? Well, you know, in, in a way, there, there is still as much interest uh, about UFO sightings today as there was 10 and 20 years ago. There's not as much money being spent by uh, government to try and track them down, the famous uh, Project Blue Book and so on. But uh, generally speaking, information about uh, UFOs is still freely thrown around. Uh, so I, I think, you know, there is still a lot of interest. But because we have now become much more technologically savvy, uh, if you will, the importance of these observations is downplayed. But there are still thousands of them are reported even in Canada every single year. Uh, people who are in your industry or, or follow this as you do, do they pay much attention to this sort of stuff or are you too busy watching what's really going on out there? The latter. I mean, you know, I spend a phenomenal amount of time outside at night uh, examining the night sky. And in all of my sort of like 40 to 50 years worth of, of active astronomy out there, I am yet to see anything that I could not identify. Uh, there were certainly a couple of things that took a little bit of uh, uh, tracking down. But, you know, within the astronomical community, which has got to be the second most, uh, second biggest group that watches the night sky after airline pilots, you know, none of the people that I work with have ever seen things that they can't identify. So, yeah, we're out there, we're looking for things, and, and we would love to see things that we couldn't identify. Uh, that, that's our business. But in the form of a UFO, something that had an extraterrestrial origin, nope, n none of that has ever happened. Carl Sagan once said, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And that evidence over the last 40 or 50 years, since the late 40s, when UFO... Uh, observations really perked up just after World War II when, when airline uh, travel became sort of relatively speaking common. Yeah, ever since then, we've never found anything that could classify as solid evidence. Uh, you brought up the, the name Carl Sagan, which people may remember. Uh, obviously, back in his era when he was younger, this would have been a great discussion, would it have not? How would he yeah. have viewed all of this? Oh, with, with great skepticism. I mean, you know, he was one of the, the best uh, you know, orators of science and the requirement to think critically about any observation that you make. Uh, yeah, you're right. He, he, in fact, he had these kinds of conversations long before the Internet. You know, there were radio interviews with him where people were asking him about UFOs. You know, he made the entire Cosmos series at the late 1970s there really with an aim to help educate people about the vastness of space and therefore some of the problems that, you know, interstellar travel would have. We are out in the middle of nowhere, and the requirements for energy and time to get us from here to there, let alone anybody else, are just you know, astronomical. So he has had these conversations. He did have these conversations. And, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and other uh, modern-day equivalents to Carl are still having these conversations. <laughs> 
So uh, considering how much uh, your industry has advanced with technology in the last several decades and, and my, what we're doing with shuttles and, and, and Elon Musk and such, uh, would that have automatically just sort of subsided this sort of rhetoric? I mean, because we are investigating this, this so much? Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, as, as I said, you know, we have become very technologically uh, aware of our surroundings. Uh, and, you know, the, the, everybody is interested at some level in outer space and the technology that is driving us to take you and I into Earth orbit and beyond. Uh, it, it's reasonable to assume that, you know, there is going to be forms of life out there that might be doing exactly the same thing and therefore coming in this direction. You know, given enough time, we'll be able to answer those questions. But um, at, at this point in time, I think, you know, everybody who makes sort of UFO observation has, has got to do it from a, a very um, candid perspective. What is the evidence that is out there? And just because Elon Musk and company are able to do things doesn't necessarily mean other people are coming here to sort of, you know, flashlights in the sky. Maybe this is all Elon Musk's fault. Maybe it's one of his things floating around there. Maybe it's a capsule with a car attached to it. How long before we see that flying across the horizon and say, what the heck is that, Paul? <laughs> That's quite true. I thought you were about to say that it was a big signal flare and that they've all come attracted to it. Exactly. It's not a UFO. It's just the latest invention from Elon Musk. So we'll hear that announcement, the press announcement, in not too long. There you go. Paul Delaney has been with us, professor of astronomy, York University. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.